Charles Spurgeon, my favorite theologian, said, It is better to dig for water, dig for a well, than to die of thirst. And so uh, I, I challenge the people to, you know, start digging, start digging deep. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now here's your host, Oh. Everybody, welcome to another episode of TSP, the Share Podcast, and today we have Jenny Reese Clark joining us on the show. As a multiple felon of various drug charges, including unlawful manufacturing of methamphetamines, Jenny is no stranger to breaking the rules or suffering the consequences. On April of 2010, Jenny's life hit an all-time low as she turned her back on the home burning behind her. And that's not the worst part. The worst part is it wasn't even her home. It was her sister's home that exploded into flames while Jenny was cooking crystal meth in the basement. Today, Jenny is recognized by Alabama's Department of Mental Health as a certified peer support specialist and has since received a pardon from the state of Alabama. Her story is nothing short of a miracle. So buckle up, everybody, because it's a hell of a story. So without further ado, let's dive right in. But first... A little share podcast news. Okay, guys, first of all, thanks so much for everyone who has helped support the share podcast. And for those of you listening who would like to know how you can help support the share podcast, let me give you a couple of ideas. First of all, the most important one, which is absolutely free, is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. iTunes single-handedly is one of the most powerful ways for people to find the Share Podcast. So to make it easy for you guys, what I've done is I've put buttons on the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Go there on the right-hand side. The very first button reads, subscribe on iTunes. Click on that button. It's going to send you directly to the iTunes podcast app. And from there, you'll click subscribe and then go to the section that says rate and review. And please leave us a five-star rating. There's no question about it. iTunes is one of the best ways for our listeners to find the Share Podcast, especially when they're searching for it on Google. If you don't have an iPhone, then go to Stitcher Radio. It's the banner right underneath the subscribe on iTunes. Click on that and do the exact same thing. Subscribe and then leave a five-star rating and review. There's no question about it. This is the best way for you to show your support. I also want to thank all the listeners who have been clicking on the Amazon banner ad. Folks, for those of you wondering what's another fantastic way to support the show is by clicking on that banner before you shop on Amazon. You're going to shop on Amazon anyway. It's not going to cost you one penny more, and it kicks back some commission to the Share Podcast We've already seen a dramatic increase in commission since we added the banner ad. So thanks again, guys. It's helping so much. And as far as being of service, you can also go to the website and click on the Join the Facebook Private Group banner. It'll take you right to the Facebook Private Group where you can request to be added and do some service. There's newcomers in there that are posting daily, old-timers sharing experience, strength, and hope. It's an absolutely beautiful way to contribute to your own recovery as well as to those in the community. So plug yourself in, get into that private Facebook group, 
It's absolutely thriving. And again, it's a wonderful way for everyone to be of service. And of course, I want to give a big thank you to all of the listeners who have continued to give donations every month. Thank you guys so much for your generous donations. And for those of you that would like to contribute and help grow and support the Share Podcast financially, you can go to the website, click on the Donate with PayPal button, and it'll take you to the page where you can make your donation. And for those of you that use Sober Grid or are looking for an app on their phone where you can find meetings, have a sobriety calculator, connect privately with members of your local recovery community, or when you travel, connect with members in recovery in order to find a meeting, then you might as well join the private alumni group for Share Podcast listeners. So go into the Sober Grid menu once you've registered. Scroll down to where it says alumni group, click on add group and type in S-H-A-I-R and the Share Podcast alumni group will pop right up. And finally, I want to give credit to the Share Podcast team that is instrumental in producing the Share Podcast, Zinzi Gugu and Evelyn E, who handle the audio editing for each podcast episode, Omar Hernandez, that does all the social media cover art, and Krista Wojo who handles all of our social media marketing. Without this amazing team, there's no way I could have continued to produce the podcast every week. Thank you, guys. I couldn't do this without you. So now a quick message from our sponsor and on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.sobernation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hey, Jenny, thanks for joining us. Hey, O, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? Fantastic. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So let's get started. So folks, today we have Jenny Reese Clark joining us on the Share Podcast, the author of Field of Influence. She's a public speaker and the founder of The Spencer Project. So Jenny, let's dive right in here. Tell us about how your life is today, your normal routine and include recovery and everything you have going on, including, you know, the public speaking and the Spencer Project. Okay, well, my typical day looks different just about every day. There's a couple of things that are uh, routine, but um, I've made it a point to try to be available. I'm married to an Army chaplain, and one of their the parts of their ministry is a ministry of presence and availability. And so I try to make sure that um, I do leave a certain amount of my schedule open to be available for those who need prayer or uh, kind of just a, you know, an ear 
um, or a shoulder or whatever, you know, just there to be there with them. So um, it kind of looks different every single day. You know, um, I, I uh, do public speaking. Um, I write uh, for my, I have a blog of my own. So I do make sure I keep that up. I also um, author on another blog. And so I make sure I keep that up. And on, on Thursdays, I do a, a program called PWOC, which is um, on Fort Benning. Uh, I do public speaking, like I said, so um, sometimes you'll find me at a conference doing something over there, and then I'll be doing something on Fort Benning, and so, you know, it, it's kind of, um, it, it's, my life is very colorful, it's, <laughs> as you'll you'll soon find <laughs> out when you hear my story, it's very colorful, um, but uh, I can get the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, um, it starts with the same thing, and that's, um, you know, my Lord, my God. And so um, I, I make sure that I devote a lot of time to prayer, um, because I think one thing yeah. that's really important in recovery is that we we do realize that we are absolutely um, powerless without God. And so, you know, I, I try to um, reserve time. I put time to the side. That in the middle of all this fun chaos, <laughs> there is some time to kind of, you know, come back to Jesus. You know, have that Jesus moment, come back to Jesus moment and go, okay, you know, I, I can't do this without you. Direct my path. Give me wisdom. Uh, give me knowledge. Give me understanding. Um, you know, one foot in front of the other, one day at a time type thing. Because, um, you know, ever since I've been sober, I've been one of those kind of people that uh, I'm a yes person. You know, yes, I will do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I'll do that too. <laughs> you know, and you can very easily become overwhelmed and consumed with that so you have to kind of bring it back and so that's what I kind of do each and every day and I kind of devote a little time to worship um, you know and and sometimes it looks like service and sometimes it looks like like you know just social media I do a lot on social media huge on social media as I'm sure you're aware yes yes we we all are (laughs) yes this day and age you know that's 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 the way to go so Absolutely. Now, do you have a recovery routine that you follow, uh, a 12-step based one, um, or has that changed over the years? It has changed over the years. Um, when I first uh, became sober, um, you know, I was put through every kind of program that the state could think of. Uh, I was actually in a, in a place called Life Tech Transitional Center, and it was a three-phase program. The first 30 days was intensive inpatient. We couldn't wear makeup. It was actually part of an incarceration for me. Um, it was kind of like a forced rehab. And the first 30 days was super intense, eight hours of counseling, um, you know, uh, the evening was all of your reports and homework and that type of thing. So we learned our steps, we learned our traditions, we learned our values, we learned all that. Um, but then you'd get a little bit of the psychology in there and a little bit of the mental health in there and a little bit of the exercise therapy and a little bit of the art therapy. And it was, it was just a lot of stuff. And then they moved you to another phase and you got a whole new counselor for another three months. And then you got all of their ideas on how to, to find sobriety and keep it. Um, you know, and, and so then after you moved that and it was a third phase of another three months and it, it was mixed with education and, and churches were coming in in the evenings. And so like you were doomed for syncretism. There were so many <laughs> philosophies on, on, you know, how to, how to get sober and stay that way and be a productive member of society. And, and I remember um, just having so much information because you would also get the medical aspect. You, you'd watch your films and you'd watch what, you know, these, these chemicals would do to your body. And so, I mean, I, I, I 
I, I had all that in the beginning, um, and I and I, I really was super focused on 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 doing everything they they had to say. But I don't want to jump in too much and tell you, but you know, I I was super stoked when I left that rehab because I thought, you know, hey, woohoo! I got every tool in my toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> I am gonna rock sobriety, and I am gonna do this, and I'm gonna be a brand new woman. And you know, disaster struck in like um, eight weeks. It's about all it took. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, so what I have, um, what has come out of all of that, uh, which I, I will get into further uh, yes. in, in a minute, but you know, what has come out of that is, um, a faith-based approach to substance abuse, which is actually, you know, what I go um, to to military military installations um, and share with them. Uh, basically, I use the church as my accountability partner. Um, you know, there's only twelve steps and twelve in the AA program. Um, the Bible's got a lot of commandments, <laughs> so I mean, I am in not at risk forever maxing out or reaching the top. <laughs> I will always, always be striving on my character. And, um, you know, I, I have found for me that it is, it is the only approach to, to actually work for me. And so I, I use my church, um, members. I use, um, the body of believers that are around me as my accountability. Um, you know, I have prayer warriors. So, so it kind of, in many ways it mimics, uh, I mean, you know, you have the same types of things that you will have in a, a program. I think it just takes it a little bit further um, on the spiritual side of things. Uh, there's more of a, like I said, a faith-based approach to it. So, man, I really I'm dig. A, I really dig the idea of the prayer warriors. I like that. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I think I'm on, I'm on Facebook, and I've got a a secret group that has got like 1,200 prayer warriors in it, and I can put a prayer request up because I'm faithful to. I'm faithful to open my mouth and speak now. Um, you know, please pray for this. Uh, you know please pray for this event or please pray for this person or, and, and literally within the hour, there's 50, a hundred, 200 responses, praying, praying now. And some of them will actually write out their prayer requests. And, and, you know, we're diligent to not only just put them up there, but put the praise reports when the, when the prayers are actually answered. Um, and, and even if it's answered, not in a way in which, which we prayed specifically for, you know, uh, we still are faithful to do that. And that's accountability, um, in and of itself, you know, which is huge and any program that you go do where you have been um, a person that was uh, your character was in question, you know, any type of all, all accountability is good for that. And so it's great practice um, and it's good, good to remind oneself that hey, there's a reliance on other people. I love Paul David Tripp. He says, um, change is a community effort. <laughs> it's a community project. I totally believe that, you know, yeah. it takes more than just one um, so, and, and you'll find that in, you know, in a faith-based recovery, uh, atmosphere in a church, you will find people who are just willing to love on you just because God said so, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> Hey, well, God said, I gotta love you. Even if you did that. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, um, there's a, there's a lot more of that to come as we get to the end of your story, but let's start at the beginning of your story. Okay. Um, <laughs> so first, how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? My anniversary date is August 10th, 2010, so it'll be six years come this come August. Woohoo! Beautiful. Yes, woohoo! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm super stoked about that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? Okay, well, let's see. Um, you know, I really was raised in, in a pretty, you know, fair, uh, good 
nice Christian home. And so the drinking and the drugs and that kind of thing really wasn't present much. Um, you know, I think I did that whole experimental where you drink lines or something like that because you're a kid and, you know, you just have to try it that one time. I did that, you know, but it, drugs really didn't have a huge impact on my life until I was in a severe car accident in 1999 uh, where I suffered severe trauma to my body. And um, narcotic analgesics became um, a must for blood pressure and for pain and for tolerance and all that kind of stuff. So um, I kind of, in the course of that, uh, was introduced first into what drugs and dependency look like. And, and I, because I was so kind, I was kind of um, removed from that lifestyle. Of course, I knew what drugs were. Drugs are bad. You know, we, we learned that in school. They fry your brain. You remember the little crack in the egg in the frying pan? You remember those? <laughs> you remember those? Uh, I do remember <laughs> those. This is your brain on drugs. Yes. Yes. Okay. So like, I had all that knowledge. But it wasn't something that I really saw the detriment firsthand. I really didn't know what addiction really was. I didn't know that your body could, like, truly have a physical dependency upon something. Um, and so when I uh, started to heal from this severe car accident and I got off the medication after three or four months of taking it continually, I really felt like crud. But I didn't know that that was withdrawals, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I didn't, I just felt like, you know, hey, I'm still healing from the car accident. You know, I mean, I broke my pelvis in half. I fractured it in five places. I broke L5 vertebrae in my back, my tailbone in half. I mean, it was like a mega serious life or death car accident. I almost bled to death through my femoral artery. You know, they transported me, you know, counties away. Um, in order to save my life. And so, you know, I just kind of assumed that it was still part of feeling like crud because, hey, I was broke. <laughs> yeah. broke really bad. So I just kind of assumed. And, you know, um, that's when the rebellion began to start in my heart because, you know, I was a show skier at the time. Uh, do you know what show skiing is? No. Okay. So if you're on water skis and you be they build the pyramids and they uh, do all the tricks on the water behind a boat. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I like, like, you know, you have aquanets. They, they have different things that they call them. Um, but I was, it's called show skiing where I'm from. I'm from the South. If you cannot tell, no. draw. <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, we call them show skiers <laughs> and, uh, we had the little flags and we, you know, do all the little fun, uh, tricks on the, you know, I'd ski with my foot and all that kind of good stuff. And I'd be the second in the tier on the pyramid and, and so I was very active in athletics. And so when this car accident came, I, you know, I, I came from this, you know, nice middle class family, Christian, you know, uh, I was smart. I had good looks. I was athletic. And then all of a sudden this car accident happened. I healed abnormally fast because I was in such great shape. Um, but when I went to go back and began to do the things that I used to do, my body could no longer do what my mind could still do. And so I was conflicted. I, I mean, I was conflicted in my soul because I was the best at everything I tried. And, and then all of a sudden, hey, you're mediocre, dude. You know, right. <laughs> you're just average. You know, I could ski again, but there was no way that people were mm. going to build and climb on me and stand on me. And I wasn't going to be able to do all these great things again. And so I, I kind of had a little bit of rebellion begin to <laughs> stir up in my soul because, you know, I had envisioned, you know, I'm going to be a famous water ski coach or something like that in my mind, like every 17 year old does, you know, I want to be a pro whatever. And, and, and that's what I had in my mind. And all of a sudden, Hey, your reality looks a whole lot different. It's not going to be that. And, 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 you know, I was so just kind of this carefree life, um, 
it could never happen to me. So when it did, I wasn't prepared. Uh, and so then after I realized, Hey, this is a no for you. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to do the next thing on my list. And, you know, I was talking to God before. I'm not really going to consult him this time because he allowed all that to happen. (laughs) Mm. I'm just going to kind of, you know, do my own thing here. And the next thing I wanted to do was what every female at 17 wants to do. You know, you want to get married and you want to have kids and you want the white picket fence and you want the happy life because that's the kind of life I came from. And, you know, that's what everybody wants, right? Yep. And so, so that's what I did. I, you know, the, the guy's house, I was actually on the way to when I had that car accident, I ended up marrying him, you know, two years later, I ended up marrying him. Um, because I felt like, hey, you know, uh, he's nurturing, he's nice, you know, he's good looking. I, I think, you know, he'll work. Wow. Oh, <laughs> so, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, genuinely, he, it was kind of like one of those Florence Nightingale effects uh, because, you know, it was instead of the nurse taking care of the wounded soldier and the soldier falling in love with the nurse, it was, you know, I had this accident. I was the girlfriend and I fell in love with the boyfriend who ended up quitting his job to come and you know, just be with me during the day uh, and take care of me and just, you know, I kind of fell in love with that nurturing yeah. protective side. And, and, you know, I thought, well, Hey, if something bad ever happens, Hey, this guy's got it together. <laughs> so, you know, I, I proceeded to move on with life and I really didn't consult God and I really didn't ask him, you know, any extra favors or anything like that. And, um, you know, I got pregnant within, I think four or five months of us being married and, because it had only been a couple of years from my car accident at the time, my frame was not strong enough to really carry a baby. And um, I decided, you know, of course, I was going to have a baby. And it was the most miserable pregnancy ever. Oh. <laughs> because it was just so, I was working full time and the pain was immense and it just was nonstop. And, and I was not one of those little pregnant girls that run around taking pictures with their baby bob. I was just miserable. I wanted that kid out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love this baby, but come on out now. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I did. And, you know, once I had my first son, John Gabriel, after about three months, I still felt nine months pregnant. And I said, you know, something's something's seriously wrong with my back. And so I went to the doctor. The doctor says, hey, yeah, you're yeah, you've got severe degenerative osteoarthritis now. And, you know, I'm I'm kind of freaking out because I'm like, what happened to mild and moderate in this and step thing? Is this in the stage? And he's like, I'm sorry, you know, the damage on your frame was just, I mean, it's too much weight. And so now you have it. And I'm sorry, there's nothing really we can do about oh, that. Man. There's no cure for it. So here's some narcotics. Mm. And um, I hope that these help because I know you have responsibilities. Um, and, you know, th- these will help, you know, you through this time. And so I took them because uh, it was a legitimate pain. And yeah. when I took that first one, it was like my body remembered back when it was t- when it took them for so many months that I had to have them and it was like like light bulbs just turned on like mm. whoa yeah that's what you're menacing <laughs> this is what you've been missing this is good stuff here this will help you out and so you know I began to take them and um, within a few short months I found out I was pregnant again and so I had one on my hip one in my belly and this was just awful Um, I managed to make it through that pregnancy. And when I went to the doctor this time, my MRI said, oh, you've got spondylolisthesis, pars and articulus defect at L5, impinging slightly on your spinal sac, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they began to name off all these things. And I remember it was like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, (laughs) I just could not, I could not accept what this person was telling me because basically they were telling me unless 
they invent something like a spine transplant or something Ooh. like that, I am jacked up for the rest of my life. Yeah. Do not plan to have any more kids. Do not plan to have anything. Matter of fact, they tied my tubes and I was just hurting. I was hurting literally, and I was hurting in my spirit because I kind of wanted a little girl. Um, my life looked a whole lot different than what I had imagined it, um, and my pain was worse than the first time, so my narcotics were stronger than the first time, and it just began to become a gradual thing. Um, once your kids start running around at toddler age, now you're running and chasing after them, and your back's hurting more, and you know, what, what mom doesn't want to pick up their kid and hold them when they scrub their knee? Right. You know, and I couldn't do those things without pain pit killers because my back was just in such delicate shape at the time and it was just it was terrible so I would take more and uh, gradually I became full-blown addicted uh, physically addicted to opiates um, you know I started that the whole drug-seeking behavior uh, began to come about I began to lavish out a little bit more about where it was hurting and I, I would read journals medical journals to find out a little bit more about you know what what um, narcotics are offered for what types of conditions and and etc I mean it was just awful and I began to my relationships began to suffer um, because you know you have that natural hiding uh, you're not proud that's not the kind of you know place that I came from so when I'm out of my medicine three, four, five months in a row, two weeks early, you know, and, and you're trying to, oh, I lost him again, <laughs> or, or, you know, or, or find, trying to find another doctor or trying to find something to help you out. You know, there's a serious problem. Um, yeah. I began to use money to, and, 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 you know, you meet people. I was at a chronic pain, uh, clinic and I was going because I had legitimate pain and, and nobody in their right mind would say, no, let's not give it to her because all they had to do was take pictures. I mean, right now I've still got two five inch long plates and four, three inch long screws attached in my pelvis. So, you know, they see that and they're like, whoa, yeah, here's some drugs. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty bad. That's jacked up right there. Jesus. Here's some medicine for that. And, uh, you know, I began to become addicted. Um, I ended up getting a divorce, uh, losing my marriage because of it. Um, I wasn't able to, um, to bring it back together. Uh, and, of course, you know, once one domino hits the next domino it's like an effect that just is a ripple that continues to, to go because it's like one blow after another um, and the momentum gets stronger and stronger and the things that I began to lose um, the relationships the friends the people that job the everything um, began, began to remove itself from my life and and so um, you know I thought I've got to get off these and, and I would try I would I would read books I would uh, I, I would pray um, but you know God's not gonna you know just deliver you. <laughs> <laughs> because you said so. <laughs> hey, God, you better do what I say. I know I didn't ask you about my marriage, but I'm going to need you to do this for right. me. You know, he's not going to, he's not going to, um, honor that. And so, you know, I, I was desperate and I, I began to, to, to figure out through journals, um, medical journals that, you know, certain street narcotics had numbing agents in them and numbing effects in them oh. that would work for pain, uh, but they didn't have physical addiction. They just had mental addiction. And if you've ever heard of a smart drug addict, that was me. There's no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can that see was... where this is going. <laughs> okay, so I thought I was smart. And I thought what I will do is I will just implement these street narcotics that have numbing agents and begin to decrease my opiate intake. And I will tell you this, that I was able to decrease some of my opiate take. But at the end of the day, I am just now addicted to the new cocaine I just added to my diet, the methamphetamine I just added to my diet, the, the um, 
uh, uh, X pills I just added to my diet, everything that had something in it. I mean, I, I, I became what, what they call a trash can junkie. You just begin to, yeah. to, to take anything. Um, and because I was losing relationships, all of this started because there was physical pain in my life. And at the end of the day, you know, I realized I wasn't taking it because of my physical pain anymore. There was a gaping hole in my soul. You know, I was empty. I was lost. Um, you know, people didn't trust me. Um, my name meant nothing. There was no honor there. Um, and now I'm addicted to all these street drugs. I, I tried so many times to, you know, do cold turkey, to, to wean yourself off. And, and, you know, like I said, I did manage to decrease some of my opiate intake, but just by a few, you know, at the end of the day, if you're still taking 12, <laughs> and, and, yeah, that's better than 20 or 25. <laughs> you're, still, you're still taking 12, baby. You're still addicted to opiates. So I could, I didn't have, I didn't even have that victory. Um, and now I'm just messed up because, you know, like I thought, um, you know, I got this. You'll, you'll notice pride is a very big key factor um, in my demise mm -hmm. <laughs> is myself. I am my own worst enemy. I know you kind of asked that at the end of the podcast where people say, you know, well, what do you think held you back? Hey, myself, mm -hmm. it was all me. Um, I thought I knew everything. I thought I could do it by myself. Um, I, because I did come from a, such a nice family. A lot of people ask the question, uh, well, if you came from such a nice family, how come you just didn't go tell them? They, it seems like they would have helped you. And, you know, they probably would have, but I was so afraid. My guilt and shame was monumental. Like it was just huge. It was enormous because I knew better. I was raised in church. I knew that I could turn to God and he could fix it. I knew that God knew that I could turn to him and that I knew that he would fix it. But I, that meant I had to get up off the throne and surrender to him and allow him to fix it how he chose to fix it. And I was still wanting to try to control the little things that were left in my life. And so I ended up getting my very first felony charges in 2008, which was a possession of cocaine, a possession of ecstasy, and a concealed weapons charge. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's just the beginning. Nice. <laughs> right. You know, just to kind of, you know, um, everybody's got their little color, their little marks. These are the beginning of my ribbons. And um, I, so I went, you know, and I, I found great mercy with the judge because the judge said, oh, wow, you heard my story like anybody does. They listen to it and they're like, oh, man, that's that's pretty messed up. You got kind of jacked up there with that car accident. It, maybe this is just a fluke. If we just, you know, let you out, get some therapy, get some rehab and, you know, we're going to we're going to give you a slap on the wrist. And so they gave me like a two year DOC, one year county time, suspended it all down to probation, said, you know, good luck out there. Um, do better. Come see me once a month, that type of thing. And I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and that was the first time I'd ever been incarcerated. And it was like, I think altogether, it was like a, almost a 90 days before I finally got sentenced and released. Um, and I was finally sober from opiates. And I was so, pr I, w I mean, like I had been trying to get off opiates for years. It ruined my marriage. It ruined my life. I was super stoked because because this is the first time I was super excited, you know, that I was going to do sobriety. And But I had no formal training, no education on it. Um, I, I didn't hardly, the only people I knew was the addicts and the addicts are going to tell you everything you want to know, want to hear, right? <laughs> oh, you're okay. It's not that bad. <laughs> Do you have anything? I can get yep. it. <laughs> you holding? <laughs> so, so that, that's kind of, kind of that. And I, I, you know, I did well for about six months. You know, I did, I did well. I went and showed up. I was clean. 
I was renting a house out for my brother and he was kind of doing the whole bachelor thing. So he was like there one month and they're not there the next month. And so in those times when, and cause you know, I think they were shuffling me around in my family. Um, by this time I couldn't deny that I was in jail. I disappeared for three months. So everybody knew. Um, but, but so the, the big elephant was there. Everybody knew what was happening. Um, you know, they actually saw me on a picture in those booked magazines. Oh my gosh. You know, in the gas station, <laughs> Yeah, you know, the little image, you know, the image like who got booked today type oh, thing. Oh man! And, and so yeah, yeah, I made you know front page and um, more than once. And so you know, it was it was one of those things you couldn't deny. So it was out there. So my oldest brother stepped in and was like, "Well, I've got this house. You know, you can rent it." You know, and and so I was doing that with him. And in the months that he wasn't there, it was just me. You know, and, and there was nothing, I, I had no job, I had no direction, I'd lost my house, I'd lost my marriage, my kids, I would get to see occasionally when I could sweet talk my ex-husband into bringing them to see me. Um, and it was just, you know, I was, I was trying. And so people were kind of, they, they, they weren't at that point where they were completely burnt out because they figured, you know, oh, well, she went to jail. That's going to shake her up. Cause you know, that's what everybody thinks, you know, if they go to jail once, that's going to do it. Yes. Um, that's going to be her bottom. Cause you can't get any lower than that. Well, right. baby, I'm here to tell you there's a whole lot lower than that. <laughs> and, and so I found that low. Um, I, you know, I, I, went in for, you know, um, I had a dirty urine and so they took me back and that's when they said, Oh, you know, uh, you couldn't do it on your own, but we've got this program and we think it's real good. And, and, you know, uh, he was having pity on me again, basically he was giving me a little mercy. He says, I'm not going to send you to prison, but I am going to send you to life tech. And that's that program I was telling you about, you know, that it was like super intense where they, I mean, the best of the best counselors, the newest, uh, philosophy on, um, substance abuse and and how to recover um, were, were being administered here. Tests, test cases. It was just uh, people from all over, all different backgrounds. Um, majority of them having been in trouble, and this is like a forced incarceration type place. And so, um, I, I went to this program, and altogether, like I said, this this became my first year long incarceration. And and when I left there, I was so excited. Um, and you what know, was the name of it again? A Life Tech Transitional Center. Life Tech Transitional Center. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they still have it for the men in the state of Alabama. But because there's hardly any funding for women's programs, they do no longer have that. As a matter of fact, I don't even think that they have uh, not even one facility in the state of Alabama that is fully state-sanctioned, state completely state-funded. I don't even think there's one. Okay. Now they still have um, Life Tech Transitional for Men, which is state funded. But I mean, that should tell you a little bit. There's some problems there, right? Because women are just as much at risk as men for substance abuse, and so of that's course. kind of kind of a problem. But this facility is no longer there, and and anyhow, it was there at the time, and and I, you know, I kind of burned the bridge with my brother um, because he had opened up his house and. You know, he ended up finding that I was doing drugs in there because he found paraphernalia. And that was like his one rule. You can come here, but you can't do any drugs in my house. And, and he found the stuff. And so he was mad at me. And my parents were mad at me because I never opened up to them to begin with. And I should have. And, and so there was all these feelings that were going on. And so when I went to the Life Tech Transitional Center, my sister... Uh, kind of was that one that stepped up and said, okay, well, it's my turn. Um, when she gets out of here, she can come live with me. And I think that if I just give her like a loving environment and a, a good stable setting, um, someone that's going to be there for her to talk to, uh, you know, for support and, and con good conversation, that that's going to be enough to keep her sober. 
And I and I and, and and oh let me tell you, I had every intention in the world to to get out and be um, a better person in life. Mm-hmm. I, I was not happy with who I was, but this program helped give me that spark of, okay, maybe, just maybe I have not destroyed everything to a point of no return. Maybe there is a return here, you know? And so I had that and I was super stoked. I, um, she, she, you know, I got to live with her, had my own room. Um, it was her and her husband and my little niece. She was 18 months old at the time. The first week I got out, I bought a car because you can't go anywhere. You can't get a job. You can't even go to meetings. You can't do anything with a car. So I needed a car. So I bought a car. And the second week I enrolled back in college because once upon a time I had my basics and I never did decide on what career I wanted to do. So I never finished. And I thought, well, you know, because this program was so education first, you know, get educated. I I thought that was the answer. That was the solution. So I, I enrolled back in college and the third week I started going to AA and the fourth week I got peer support and I found somebody else who was trying to get sober, who was also attending meetings, um, who I'd met in jail. And, you know, we both had the same goal and we thought, okay, that's great. And the fifth week we went to a meeting together and no one showed up to chair the meeting. <laughs> but oh, man. And so you've got two freshly <laughs> <laughs> new, you know, dope junkies um, looking at each other going, you know, look, we're sober. We look good. Um, you know, we know so-and-so around the corner. We should go. And I, I had been incarcerated for a whole year. I had lost all of my friends that were legitimately good people because who wants to hang out with a drug addict? No one does. But your junkie friends will always be willing to hang out with you. <laughs> so, yes. So we, 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 you know, we're going to go around the corner and just show them how great we looked because, you know, like I said, I'd been, I was like, Hey, I'm not dead. You know, I made it. I made it. I was incarcerated. I'm out, you know, that type of thing. And we, we left there sober only to find ourselves circling the block to go back and get meth. And, um, over the course of my time, you know, I skim a lot because there's so much over the course of my time. I met people and I, I, I learned tricks of the trade. You know, doing drugs is not a cheap habit. Um, I don't care what drugs you do, depending on what drugs you do, the more expensive they are. Right. Um, I had already used all my material possession and the rest of my material possession I lost while I was incarcerated for three months. And so I was kind of out of that. So I began to learn ways to, um, supply my habit. And that was by manufacturing, you know, and, and, and making them myself, you know, Hey, I, you know, I told you I like those medical journals. Hey, what will do the body good, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. <laughs> and I, I began to study, you know, kind of a little bit about chemistry and kind of what interacted with what I met a group of people that, um, actually came up, uh, originally when hurricane Katrina came and it was a bunch of meth cooks. And, um, and, you know, I walked in their house one day and, uh, you know, stuff was going on and it kind of blew my mind because I didn't expect it. Uh, but that's so, so, uh, that's a typical story for many people of how they, they get started, you know, wrong place, right time, right place, wrong time <laughs> type thing. And, and, you know, I found myself with a whole bunch of people, um, that would take my drug use to a whole another level. And it was only two weeks later, oh, that... I managed to blow my sister's house up manufacturing methamphetamine while she was gone to work. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. It was horrible. Um, so, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I want details on this, okay? Because okay. this is like, you just can't gloss over this. All right? <laughs> I, I, like, I, I, I want to know, like, you're in your sister's house. 
And you're, and okay, you're, so, okay. Yeah. So, so many people ask this question. They say, well, you know, if your sister was so involved in conversation, how did you, you know, skim that up? How did she not notice that you were doing that again? And, and how are you doing that in house? I never brought drugs into her home. Um, I would, you know, we're excellent at, 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 at deceiving people. Um, and I would make sure that my uh, AA meetings were at the time that she would just be walking in the door from work. And then I would make sure that they lasted long enough to that she was just putting, you know, her 18 month old down and she would see me for two seconds of, Hey, and bye. And, you know, that type of thing. And, um, I, I was, was together with this, this girl and, um, you know, I needed to, um, supply my habit and I was already under the influence. I'd been, I think high a solid week. Cause like I said, it was around the fifth or sixth week that we went to this AA and no one showed up and went around the corner and got our first bag of meth. And then that ran out and nobody had anything good. And I was like, Hey, you know, I don't want anybody knowing because I just went to rehab that I'm doing that I'm doing. I, I need to keep this really on the really secret and I can just make it myself and it's not a problem. And so I did and I made it. And then of course, from that first batch, I stayed high for, you know, a solid week. And then it was time to make, you know, more. Um, but the, that's where the danger really comes in. Um, because once you lose sleep and you become delirious and you're not, you know, you're, you're thinking you're doing things correctly and it's so dangerous anyway, um, the chemicals that you work with, um, are just, flat out dangerous period. Yeah. But I had, I'd finished actually manufacturing the math. There's the processes, um, when you manufacture and I had finished doing it. And, um, I actually got to the point where the final phase is, is where you called smoking it off. And I was in my sister's home, um, because I wasn't thinking I did the actual, um, manufacturing outside, but because, and you know, I don't know why I did it there. The best guest years later in life is that, and this is sick. This will tell you how sick a mind is on that. I thought, you know, she is so good. Nobody will ever think to look here. And you know how jacked up that is? Yes. That is so treacherous. Oh, man. I mean, how, that's how, that's how evil that drug is. It is. And, and, you know, I, I was just, I was thinking she's so perfect. She's so good. No one will ever think to look how they'll never think in a million years. It's true. I know how to do this. I've done this numerous times. It's about a bing, about a boom and it's done. And the last part is not even dangerous, but if I had been in my right mind, I wouldn't even have gone near the sink because there's water in the sink pipes in the walls and that's close and you know lithium and water do not interact um and i remember cleaning out the sinks making sure the sinks were you know or just making sure that that they were dry and i began to to funnel uh to filter the dope and clean it um and a piece of lithium um that had been saturated in ammonium nitrate slished outside the funnel and landed in the sink and uh, because I had dried the sink, it didn't um, spark right away, but it began to smoke. And I and I realized, and I said a few choice words. Um, <laughs> I said, "Oh," <laughs> and I said, "That is water." And I said, "Oh, that's lithium." And in a in a flame. Um, that sparked all the way up to the ceiling, ignited, and I'm sitting here holding a gallon bag of liquid dope and liquid fuel um, that has has ammonia in it and and all these other other things and um, which is a bomb basically yes. four ingredients for a bomb and so I see a spark and I'm holding the source and I'm not going to hold it any longer and so I I flung it across the room um, because I I realized that the fl- the fumes 
Uh, the, the flame actually went, put itself out in the sink, and I thought I was safe for about five seconds. And then I realized that the fumes on, at the ceiling on top of the fuel that I was holding were, they had caught fire. And it was every color under the sun because a chemical fire is, is like that. Um, it was every color under the sun, and it was coming to this bag that I was holding, and I could no longer hold it anymore um, because I knew that, you know, that meant my death. And so I, I flung it across the room, and I, I took off, um, and it, it actually went underneath um, my sister's um, bird's cage, and her pet perished. And right before my eyes, it just, you know, and, and I was, I was, like the moment, the reality of what was happening in the moment was crushing. And, and all I could think is, oh my gosh, run, flee, um, danger. You know, I, I, I could feel like time stands still. I always say that, you know, if you're, if you're trying to, if you, if you end up wanting something to be a permanent memory, you know, you repeat it over and over in your mind. Well, it's like literally time stood still and this memory was being permanently, um, you know, like I realized at that moment that I was breaking hearts, breaking lives, breaking dreams. You know, she had sold that house that same day. They were coming over to sign the papers on this house that I just blew up at five o'clock that afternoon. And they were signing the papers on their dream home at six that had a mother-in-law plan just for me. Jesus. And I did that. And so I take off because I, I understand what I've done. I just yeah. lost any hope and any chance um, of, of restoring oh. a relationship with my kids permanently. I just devastated and, and stabbed my sister in the back. The one sister, the sister that was caring for me, that was loving for me when all others, you know, were kind of just fed up and, and the one that believed in me and I had just destroyed it. And, and, you know, I knew that at that moment I was a coward. And so I ran and, and, you know, it was so hot in there. Oh, that my shoes had melted to the floor. I was wearing flip-flops um, and, and, and they, I had to kick them off because by the time I got to the floor, they were melted. Um, it was so hot in that house. And, and I took off and, I will tell you that within 24 hours, I was admitted to Jackson Hospital in Montgomery, Alabama, as a Jane Doe on an ICU in ICU on a ventilator in a coma from a drug overdose on a drug called GHB. Good Lord. Yeah, and and you know, did you get uh, any burns or anything? You know, um, the burns that I had were more from the gas that would come up, the gases that would come up off of these chemicals. Um, it was most, you know, God really protected me from getting fire burn. So everything that I did have was chemical burn. Yes, I did have numerous chemical burns, um, but n nothing to what could have been. Uh, the Lord really had, you know, I, I always have called this moment, you know, high insights, lovey. I call this moment our safe house burning. Have you ever been to the circus or the fair where they have the little house that they fill with smoke and you're supposed to go in on your knees and fill your way around? I've, you know, but the house is not really on fire. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Where the kids go in there? No, 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 no. I'm trying to picture it. Okay, okay. At fairs, they have these, like, Smokey the Bear will come up, and they have these little fictitious homes, and they will put those little smoke um, bombs in there, and what they do is they have kids go through it while they're smoke, and what they're trying to do is to teach them to get down low on the ground, to feel their way around, um, to get themselves out of danger if something like this were to ever happen. And it was like God had his hand on this house the whole time, that even though everything was being destroyed, he was protecting my life. Even though there was animals and pets being killed, 
he was protecting my life and it was a safe house burning. He was, you'll see when I get to the end of my story, how all of this was part of God's master plan for how, how he wanted to mold my testimony and my character through this event. Um, not just for me, but for my sister and her husband. And and I'll get to that point in just a second. But, you know, I, I was in the hospital. Um, and again, my body would not respond to my brain, what my brain was telling it, because when I was in the coma, my brain uh, woke up before my body did. And because one of the nurses, we're in a fairly small town, one of the nurses recognized me, called my brother and said, hey, I think your sister just got admitted as a Jane Doe here at Jackson. You, you know, they were looking for me. You know, the house had blown up. They were they were starting to put the pieces together of what could possibly happen, but they thought that I was dead because, you know, I had this radical profession of, uh, of, you know, this newfound life. And then all of a sudden this, you know, just didn't make sense. And, and so, you know, they were starting to put the pieces together and they had contacted, um, my, my brother, my brother contacted my parents. My, I remember my mom sitting there squeezing my hand and saying, Jenny, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand. And I was squeezing her hand and she, she's like, still no response. And I'm thinking, no, no, I'm pretty sure I squeezed her hand. And, you know, she'd say, Jenny, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand. And I was, I was just, you know, I was getting it inside my brain. I was squeezing as hard as I could. And she, she was still no response. And I thought, and that was the first moment where I thought, oh my God, they might, they might pull the plug on me and I might die for real again (laughs) because I almost died in the car accident. I almost died in the fire. And here I am again. I'm alive. I'm awake. And you know, my, my, what I'm presenting to the world is dead. Wow. My body is dead to them and I'm not dead. And it was like I was fighting in my spirit to to find life. Um, and, and I think these were the beginning um, sparks of something different, like knowing that I didn't have the answer in and of myself and, and it could not be found in this world for me. And because it was so spiritual, you know, I, I ended up getting coming to getting off the ventilator, getting coming out of the coma. Jump Street was kind enough to escort me from the hospital doors to their to their pad where they, of course, interrogated me, um, and I was the world's biggest conspirator, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and I, there again, I had this moment where I was understanding truly, like I had in that house, what I really had done. And I'm sitting there in paper scrubs with all these little burn marks all over. They had administered all these antibiotics to me because I did have all this nasty stuff that was going on on the outside of my body. And and I was sitting there and I was like, wow, you know, some people sit there and say, man, I lost everything but the clothes in my back. And I'm thinking the clothes in my back are paper scrubs. Oh. I am a loser. <laughs> you know, I just... I thought to myself, I have lost everything. This, I mean, you can't get worse than what's happening right now. And, of course, I was charged with a Class A uh, manufacturing charge. You know, the minimum sentence is 15 years to 99 or life in prison. Oh, my God. They charged the Yes, and they charged me with an arson charge, which fortunately at the time was a misdemeanor because um, I was charged with a Class A felony, and it can only be, you know, if it's done in a company, you know, it's a, a an end result of a underlining class a crime and so that's how i that became only a misdemeanor but you know i'm sitting there and so you know of course they take me there straight to jail 
my bond's high. You know, I'm sitting there waiting uh, for a preliminary bond reduction hearing. I'm beginning to become sober again because, mind you, I'd only really been high a couple of weeks, and I had a year sobriety before that. So, you know, um, meth has a way of uh, taking a little bit longer than other drugs to kind of heal your brain from that. But, um, you know, I had done so much, and uh, the the sober-mindedness started to come a little sooner than it had before. You know, when I was going through all the opiate withdrawals, I mean, you're not even thinking about sober mind. You're just like, I just need to breathe one more second. You know, (laughs) let me just get through the next hour. And and, in this moment, it was like, whoa, you know, hey, I just blew up a house. I'm going to be in prison for the rest of my life. This is, you know, and I'm starting to understand these things. I sat in jail. Long enough for a preliminary bond reduction hearing, because I would, because I had made a little bit of meth, I had a little bit of money put aside um, for making it. When they reduced my bond and dropped it down to like ten thousand dollars, and then they said, "Hey, well, um, you know, we're going to lower your bond to ten thousand, but we're going to we're going to allow you to bond out, but you have to be bonded to a halfway house because we want to be able to keep an eye on you, and we want to have restrictions on you, you know, kind of like a house arrest type thing, but under the man under the supervision of a halfway house." manager and that's the only way we're going to let you out and you know you come back for your hearing and all that kind of stuff and so you know it was like oh wow you know yes I'll do that and then I had this master plan again did it did it did you know God just kind of went out the window all these little thoughts of I need something for my soul kind of went wait a minute if I can get out I can roll back in school I can like uh, the halfway house I was going to the uh, pastor who actually had the halfway house on on the church property he was a former chemist and I was thinking man if I had this guy testify about you know I mean I, I just had all these great ideas about how I was going to get the least amount of trouble out of my circumstance. And I ha- I was still not wrapping my mind around the devastation and destruction that I had caused other people in my life because it's a very self-centered, selfish yeah. um, problem that we have when we are addicted. Sure. And, and, and all I could see was my suffering and my pain, and I just didn't want to feel it. I mean, it's not that I didn't love anybody else. It wasn't that I didn't care that, you know, I had done these things. It was that um, I couldn't live if I didn't have something to cover that up because that pain was just, that was going to swallow me whole and I was going to die if I had to feel that. And and so I was just, you know, but I got back and I saw this little spark and I had this little plan. And so, you know, I, you know, I rolled back in school again. Here I am third time around. <laughs> I'm going to roll back in school. I did all that, you know. Oh, do you know that two months later I got taken back to jail for two more dirty urns after I've done all of that, like, where is your bottom? Where is your low? And when they were taking me that last time to jail, I remember going um, to jail and thinking, you know, man, I really don't have the answers. Because this time I, I had it so mapped out. It was so strategic. It was so beautiful. This, I mean, there's no judge in their right mind that was going to, you know, I mean, he might give me some time. But if I had all this stuff working for my good and I was in this program on the street and I was going to this recovery program because I started going to lighthouse counseling and all this kind of different programs that I could find, you know, to make myself look good. You know, no judge would, would then spend state dollars. I mean, I just had this like all mathematically, uh, this is how it's going to work out. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, man, it's crap. All that junk is crap. I am lost. I have no idea which way is up. I can't, I cannot do this by myself. I absolutely need help and I absolutely need to surrender. And so when I got there, because the way the penal system works, my bond was only $5,000 with no stipulation. So this time I could get out with like 500 bucks cash in my pocket, which I had. 
um, and not even have to go to the halfway house with restriction. But I was like, no, you know, at this time I'm staying and I'm going to stay because, uh, Lord God, do not let me out of these walls until I find the answer that you, you know, the why you've allowed all this to happen. And when I began to change my perspective of what was going on and begin to accept responsibility for, um, the, the choices in my life and, um, surrender my will for his, my life began to radically change. It was not overnight. I spent 10 months in jail before they ever sentenced me. And of course they sentenced me with a 15 year sentence, um, which was the minimum. And he gave me a special sentence, uh, by the grace of God, you know, it was a a split sentence where they do three in three out. Uh, so you do six years on your 15. If you mess up any time during that six years, then you go back and you do day for day one through 15. So it's kind of like a scary sentence if you plan to do wrong, but it's a great sentence if you plan to do right. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, it's like one of those things. And a lot of a lot of times you'll even see people say, no, sir, I don't want the split. I'll take the 15 straight because I just do my five and then I get to parole out or whatever. And I can guarantee on that. You know, <laughs> and so so I was kind of in this place where I was like, you know, I've, I haven't been accountable. I haven't been yeah. uh, focused in years. God, I'm going to need your help to do this because I don't even know. You know, I was raised with what's right, what's wrong, but I don't even know anymore. My lines are so blurred. I can't even see. It's, it's like a fog and it's all gray and I don't know which way to go, right or left. I need you to reteach me everything. And so I remember going to the back gate to Julia Tutwiler prison, you know, then making sure your hair is all cut off to, to uh, uh, chin length because it's equal rights in the state of Alabama for men and women. So women have to cut their hair the same length as men. And so, you know, um, which is devastating for a woman, uh, because that is what makes them feminine, you know, a lot of times. And, and so, you know, all these things, this, this, this backwards world, you know, incarceration prison is a backwards world. It's not, you know, what God intended, what was designed for you, uh, a loss of freedom in the most free country in the world. Uh, you know, it, it, it was just so Greek. It was so foreign. And, and I truly needed a light and, and, I remember they have this thing, you know, they have mail call in, in jail. And by this time I'd been, you know, locked up, I guess, about 12 months at the time, 10 months, 11 months before I finally got to the back gate. They did this mail call when I was in prison. And, um, you know, if you've ever been incarcerated, if you get a piece of mail, you are just extremely stoked and excited because someone has taken the time out of the day and, and you're not dead to them and they care at least a little bit. And, and someone knows you're alive and you're not forgotten. And so it's so very important that, that someone get that piece to just keep them going from day to day. And, you know, I didn't get many pieces because by this time everybody ripped me off. It, I didn't get letters from the kids. I didn't get letters from the ex. I didn't get aunts, uncles, grandparents, brothers, sister, nobody. And my parents, they did write me and they did come see me. But, you know, you, you I mean, you've been a dick. If you've, if you've been in this world, you know, when you look at somebody and they don't believe a word you're saying. Yep. And it's out of pity that they speak to you. And it became where I began to look at my parents when they'd come see me through the monitors. And I would see that it's like, oh, mm-hmm, yeah. And it was like they had accepted in their mind that I would be this way for the rest of my life. And that they had decided that they would choose to still love me in that manner. And I knew that's what they were thinking. And I could see it all over their face. And it was the most shaming and guilty, guilty, you know, thing that you go through, uh, which is all part of course, you know, you you make these choices in life and these are part of your consequences. But I remember 
seeing them, the, the, the guard yell out, because I was in a, in a dorm called The Jungle in Julia Tutwiler Penitentiary, and it was way back in the back. They call it The Jungle because there's so many dorms and beds that when everybody stands up, you can't see the back. And so, you know, I, he, the guy comes in. He's got this foreign accent. I don't know why, but he's, mail call! You know, <laughs> so everybody scatters like rats like, as fast as you can to the front because everybody is hoping that they have a piece of that action. And I saw this brown envelope come up, and that is our family. Family business has been the same family business, and we've had the same uh, mailing envelopes forever. And they're like a brown paper bag color. Um, and so I saw this envelope come up, and I just knew it was for me. And I was making my way from the back because I was just so excited. And I got this this list letter, and I opened it up, and it was nothing like I had imagined. My dad began to tell me what happened that day when I was brought back from death, um, when I was in that coma. At the same time that the doctor had come in and given the news that, hey, she's going to live, my mother had gotten a phone call that one of our family friends, one of the ski team members that I had been a part of, had died in a tragic um, wake. I mean, a tragic uh, barefoot water skiing accident where you know you ski with no, yeah, um, you ski with your feet. Mm-hmm. And he had broken his neck and he was dying. And my dad is writing about where my mom is standing and and how she almost buckled to the floor and how in his mind he was thinking, here we have a man who loved the Lord who walked according to his will, um, and God chose to take him out of this life and leave my daughter, who was is full of destruction and pain for other people and causing all this stuff. And why would you do that, God? That makes no sense. You know, why would you take one good thing and leave one bad thing? I don't understand. And there was this other guy in the room at the time um, who just so happened to be with my mom. My mom's a principal. My mom was a principal at a school, and he's also a principal at a school. And he just so happened to be there at the time when she got the call. So he came, and he's looking at me. My dad's telling me what's going on because his son um, has the same drug problem. And he's looking at me like I could be his. And it is just so intense the way my father wrote it. And what happened that day is my eyes truly became to be opened for the first time the fog lifted the veil was gone and I truly understood the pain that I had caused others the beginning I had no I I I thought I understood I had prayed I had begun reading in jail reading my Bible in jail oh you know I'm gonna get you know get some Jesus and he's gonna help me back out and, and this kind of thing you know and then and then I get this letter and I'm like man I have no clue yeah. I have no clue to the depth of the pain I caused other people. And and, it, and I went back to my bunk and I read it over and over and over and over again. And I said, I am never going to be this person again. I am never going to be the person that causes all this um, drama and chaos. I'm not going to be that person that tears people's dreams and hopes apart. I'm never going to be that person. And I began to study the word and I began to read scripture and I began to, you know, um, apply it to my life and read it like it was real, you know, and it was a difference, um, than, than what I had read in the past. And, you know, it became like a lifeline for me, you know, AA is like that for some people, NA is like that for some celebrate recoveries like that for some people, you know, my Bible became the word of life Yeah, <laughs> and it was my hope and it was my joy. And, um, everybody gets like a, a life verse, a quote or whatever. And I have one too. And it, mine was Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Um, and it says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hope. And I felt called and, you know, years later I was, 
was. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't lying or anything. You know, I went through my entire prison stay studying, trying to serve him in an awkward place, and that looked really colorful. And I'm sure we don't have enough time for all that in the podcast, but. Um, you know, it's a, it's fun stories about how I learned lessons, uh, practical applications for these biblical truths in my life and how to how to act them out. Um, you know, but no one really spoke to me. So like two and a half years, it was two and a half years of silence. Um, you know, my, my mom and dad, like I said, were the faithful too. And that was it. And, you know, I come from a big family. And so that's, you know, and I have kids and nothing. It's all silence. And, and I kept reading the scripture because of these promises. And, and I had to come to that point where I said, okay. If God never, ever gives me another thing in my life, am I still going to serve him? And I, and, I, and I answered that question, yes, in my soul. And as soon as I did, I promise you, from the heavens, God opened the doorway of forgiveness, and people just began to forgive me. Um, I think because um, my motives in my heart had truly changed. Uh, the intention of my soul was no longer uh, self-seeking. It became uh, one of servitude. Uh, which is, you know, like many programs are, um, once you come to that final step, you know, it's it's a it's a life of servitude, of of giving away the joy that you have found, giving away the hope that is in you. And um, I wanted to be ready, and I wanted to to deliver this. And I begged God. I said, God, you know, uh, don't waste my life. You know, I have I have caused so much pain and so much. Uh, I have, just don't waste it. Just use it for something, God. I'd please use it for something. And don't let me out of here until I've learned every lesson I need to learn. <laughs> because I do not want to go through this again. I'll die. I just can't do it. And so he did, you know, and um, I, I ended up earning a program um, where I could start doing work release. Uh, I was still at a work release camp um, and doing work release. And it came time for the, you know, where you could go home on Christmas because you've earned that privilege to get to go home for like so many hours. And um, I began to earn these passes, and one by one, family members began to forgive me. But of course, you know, there's my sister, and it, it, the way the math worked out, it was it was going to add up to where I could go home for Christmas, like for the first time in years. Because mind you, by now I've spent my 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, and 31st birthdays all incarcerated in a different place in the state of Alabama. Yeah. So three or four years before that, I wasn't going to Christmases because no one wanted a drug addict at Christmas. Right. Uh, so it had been years since I'd gone. I, I was so excited because people were starting to forgive me, but I could not see stealing Christmas from my sister after all I'd already robbed her of. You know, and and so I, I said, you know, Dad, I, I can't go if if Evelyn has, you know, if Evelyn doesn't want me there, I will stay in prison, and and I don't want to take that from her. And so, you know, it was like my last home pass before it was time for me to go home for Christmas. And um, I remember uh, I, there's this big peach on I-65 in Alabama, which is halfway from the Birmingham Work Release Center to the uh, to Montgomery where I lived. And I'll never forget it because my my dad had a Corvette, so we're we're going pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> and we go by this big peach that's on the side of the road, and it's the halfway point to home. And my dad says, um, hey, your sister wants to meet with you. And I'm like, what? You know, and, 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 and you know, I'm like scared to death at this point because yeah. is she going to sue me? Is she going to, you know, <laughs> what's she going to do? I mean, you know, Terrifying. Oh, my gosh. And, and, you know, really what I was seeking, what I wanted, I had written her over the course of time because, you know, that's what you do in recovery. You, you write, you make amends, you do these things. And, of course, I never, I never got a response back. Uh, but honestly, in my head, what I really, truly wanted was forgiveness from her. Um, and I felt like I was getting ready to go in front of the judge because whatever she decided, whatever she rendered, 
if she was going to forgive me or not, was going to change my life radically from that point forward. Uh, because it was, you know, if she said she was going to forgive me, then there would be a chance for, for me to have all my family together again one day. You know, may not right, maybe not right away, but, you know, in the future. But if she says, I'm not going to forgive you, I never want to see you again, never come to my house, you may be friends with everybody else, but you're not friends with me, then that was going to truly just impact my soul, like <laughs> impact my life. And so I remember Dad said, okay, well, um, you know, I'm going to drop you off, and I'm going to be right around the corner, so just call me when it's done. <laughs> I'm like, whoa! Wait a minute, you're going to leave me here? Oh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go right there and um, I'm going to pray. <laughs> and and your, your your brother-in-law and your sister are going to come see you. And um, I'm just going to be right there, okay? And I'm thinking, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. <laughs> Door shuts. And I am sitting there and I'm going, oh, Jesus Christ, I totally need you in this moment. And, and you know, that little bitty glimmer of hope came up where she might forgive me. And I had, you know... In car, when you're when you're in prison, you have a lot of time to think, and so I had imagined a million times. I'd played it over and over what this forgiveness would look like. She would come to me and she'd wrap her arms around me and she'd say, "I forgive you, Jenny. I love you." And that was like the greatest moment in my dreams uh, that I've had in the time of you know, because that's restoration and that's what everybody hopes for. And and so I did. I'd prayed for that and hoped for that and dreamed that in my mind. And you know, here I see this car pull up and she gets out and they both get out with these envelopes and I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, and, 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 and the door turns and they walk in the door and I'm just kind of frozen there, you know, not knowing what to expect. And she says, would you please have a seat at the conference table? Ben and I would like to talk to you. <laughs> oh my gosh, here it comes. You oh, know? Um, and so we have this big, long conference table. I'm sitting on one side. They're sitting on the other side, looking directly at me. And it's definitely like a judge, uh, you know, uh, someone going in front of the judge exactly like that. If you could imagine it in your mind. And my sister proceeds to tell me that they do not want me to speak until they've had a chance to read the letters that they have for me and, um, that she will start and then her husband will finish. Um, and then we can talk. And so I'm, I'm thinking, oh my goodness. So she pulls out this letter and, oh, she sat there and told me, Jenny, I not only want to forgive you for what you have done, but I want to thank you. Had I never went through that trial in my life, I would have never learned to lean on the Lord for strength and support and stability. I would have never known how to turn to my husband and allow him to embrace me and, and us to connect together with God. She said, our relationship is so strong now, it's impenetrable. We now reach out to other young couples and help them overcome trauma and, and, and trial. And that would have never happened without you. So I want to thank you. And I'm just like... Did she just thank me for blowing up her house? <laughs> she well, did. I, I'm like looking at her. I'm going, that is, that is nothing but Jesus Christ right there. Yeah. You know, never seen God. There he is right there yeah. through my sister because that is not a natural thing. You do not forgive someone and then turn around and thank them for destroying all your hopes and dreams and burning everything that you had that ever meant anything to you in your life. Um, all your baby clothes, your wedding clothes, your pictures, everything, everything gone down to the studs and the wall and all the way down to the brick. That was the only thing left was the brick. That's what you have left. And I did all that. 
and I devastated you and your life changed radically because of me. And you just thanked me because had it never happened, you would have never been close to God. See, that's what I mean about that safe house burning. God had an idea in mind. He wanted to teach all of us in this moment how to lean on him for hope and strength. And he allowed this to to, to transpire in order to bring us all to him. Well, you know, that's huge. That's monumental. I'm boo-hooing. I'm I'm just not understanding what I just heard. She even says, you know, Jenny, I I want to take this a step further. And she goes to tell me a little about the details of what happened. I'm not going to get into all of them right now. But she says, you know, even the death of our pet allowed us the opportunity to then talk to my daughter about what happens to us when we die. And I would have never had that opportunity in the way I had it, um, had that not happened. So thank you again. And I just, I am just blown away. She, she, she finishes her letter. I'm wiping the snot from my face, you know, and, 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 and it's, and now it's his turn. Okay. Well, my sister is my sister, okay? She's family. But my brother-in-law, they were only married for like a year and a half. I'm, I'm like, you know, wondering. He's probably like, well, she may forgive me, but you ain't coming to my house ever again. <laughs> you know? So I'm waiting for what this man is going to tell me. Um, and he says, uh, you know, um, Jenny, uh, your real battle and your real war is going to occur the day you leave from prison. You may think it's a challenge now, but the temptation when you get out will be huge. If you're not equipped and you're not prepared to deal with that spiritually, you'll find yourself in the same way again. He proceeds to read Ephesians 6. Now, I had been going to church with him in those few amount of weeks that I had lived with him prior to this fire. And in their Sunday school, the, the, the Sunday school leader he carried a coin and he, he gave coins to all the men. He was a former military dude. And if you know anything about our United States military, the uh, commanders will give out coins uh, for very honorable and noble things um, that you do. Uh, and you're supposed to keep that coin on you at all times. And if you ever get coin checked, you're supposed to be able to give an account of what you did in order to earn that coin. And so he had taken his military training and kind of brought it into the church. And he had these Ephesians 6 coins that were the warriors of Christ. If you've ever read Ephesians 6, it talks about the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, you know, uh, the buckle of truth, these types of things. And on it was this soldier, okay, was this uh, was this biblical um, idea of a warrior. And it had all this scripture around it. And it had um, holes bore in this coin. And so he begins to explain to me um, that, you know, in the Sunday school class, it is accountability. That if you, if the men in the class, if you happen to see them at the mall or you happen to see them at a sporting event and they didn't have their coin on them, you could coin check them. If they didn't have it, they'd have to buy coffee or they'd have to buy dinner or something <laughs> like that. It was a way to keep people accountable yeah. spiritually. Like, are you going to be ready when something crazy happens, right. when the trials of life, when the flaming darts of the evil one come to attack you? Are you going to be ready? And so it's just like a little, you know, an actual tangible reminder of, of uh, you know, are you, you know, what are you going to be prepared? Are you going to be equipped? And so he pulls out this coin and has two and a half holes in it. Apparently what happened was in the midst of their fire, his brothers in his Sunday school class came over and coin checked him in the front yard as his house was burning down behind him. And they all pull their coins out and they pray over these coins because, you know, this was definitely, if anything, an attack from evil on their family through me. 
<laughs> you know, and it was, are you going to be equipped? Are you going to stand on, on the gospel of peace? Are you going to protect yourself, uh, you know, with righteousness and, and the sword of the spirit, which is the Bible, you know, there were, are you going to, you know, and so they prayed over this and he had bore two and a half, he had bore two holes inside of this coin. He gave it to me. He says, I want you to keep this coin on you at all times. Um, I have bore two holes in it for the two years of sobriety that you already have at this moment. But when you get out, you need to always be equipped to handle uh, the, the temptations that will present themselves to you. Uh, and if you're not equipped spiritually, you know, you you will find yourself in the same way. Like I said, as we said, and I was just, you know, I had envisioned what forgiveness, what, what real forgiveness looked like. A million times, as I said, I played it, played that tape over and over in my head. And then when I saw what God's idea of forgiveness and love was for me, I was blown away. I thought, for me? I mean, you want to encourage me and you want to give me a token uh, as a reminder of where I need to, to go? I mean, that's love. Because I have harmed you, but you still look out for my best interest. And, you know... Life has been absolutely amazing ever since that moment. Um, life has changed. It has not always been easy. Um, I will tell you that I, I do not struggle with drugs, though, at all. Um, but I am not I am not going to say for one second that I am above that or beyond that, because the second I say I am is the day I fail. So I am in constant reminder of where I am in my place. I am a sinner saved by grace. <laughs> and and that is the only way that I can move forward um, day to day is knowing that I am fully dependent on the Savior and the God who saved me um, and brought me out of that, out of this, the, the fire, literally, uh, to, to, to this path that he had for me. You know, I ended up finishing my time in prison. I got out. I was on papers. Um, oh, I am, um, you know, the Lord gave me a new vision. He gave me a new mission. Um, I, I wrote a book that uh, is about a Marine who gets wounded in combat, comes back stateside and has to fight a whole nother battle with PTS and drug addiction on the streets of New York. And I could write about that because I had suffered severe trauma. I knew what PTS is, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress. And, and I had moral injury and I, and I had, you know, substance abuse. And so I could write this character in first person where people can jump into the mind of this character and kind of go with him on this journey that he has. Um, and, and you're, and you're, and you're able to, to understand, um, in a way, if you've never experienced drugs, you're able to, to safely get inside of the mind of an addict and understand how they reason. And hopefully my goal was is so that others can gently guide the thinking of those who are suffering that they know, um, which, you know, turned into um, a full-blown ministry that I have where I am, do give away these ebooks to chaplains in the military. And, um, you know, God has, has called me from the dark into the light and uh each day sustains me you know some days i'm more tired than others but i have a hope inside of me that you know just drives me and um there's a peace about that you know it's it's the coolest thing ever ended up marrying an army chaplain of course (laughs) you know uh in the process of him calling me and me just being obedient you know i had no intention of uh, marrying this chaplain, but, you know, I ended up going up to Fort Leavenworth uh, <laughs> speaking for uh, the Army Substance Abuse Program in Kansas. And, uh, you know, I met this chaplain along the way that had a similar love uh, for soldiers, a similar love for God, and we fell in love and uh, we got married last August. And so now I'm down in 
Georgia and Fort Benning and doing Army ASAP there. And uh, it's just cool. It's cool. God is um, gracious. He's, you know, full of mercy. Um, continues to restore things that I've lost. I, I got full. I got pardoned by the state of Alabama on December 1st, 2015. <laughs> Oh wow! Yes, I got a go. I got a pardon by the state of Alabama. Um, so on top of all that other stuff, God continues to um, bless me with with restoration, and it's just the coolest thing ever, you know. So that's your story. Yeah, <laughs> and it keeps going. <laughs> Man, so you're telling me that just recently, we're talking a few months ago, you got a full pardon. I got a pardon. Yes, sir, I did. <laughs> By the state of Alabama, I'm just like I said. I've tickled pink. I took a picture and everything. Have pardons running across it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, uh, I, I give, gave it my my darndest attempt to make it go viral. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, look what happened. Look how the Lord works. <laughs> so that was really cool, um, you know. And uh, I've got ideas for a second book. I've kind of already started on that. Um, you know, I go around and I share my testimony at halfway houses, at schools, at uh, warrior transitional battalions, at um, ASAP. I mean, because there is so many details and there's so many angles to the story. And um, by the grace of God, he saved my wit to where I could remember really well what happened um, and be able to share about it. You know, sometimes you go through all that trauma, you go through all those drugs and, you know, you just don't have any sense after that. <laughs> you know, by, by you know, by... By him only am I able to even turn around and share my story. I should be dead. Um, I should be dead numerous times. I mean, I only told you of three times that I nearly died just in the hour that we're talking. I I promise you there's more. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Um, I'm blessed. I'm truly blessed. Yes, there's no question about (laughs) it that you are blessed. And, you know, there's so many people that have, there's so many recovering addicts that have, such a difficult time connecting with the idea of a higher power Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they're waiting for these unbelievable miracles to happen Mm -hmm. in their lives. And for many of us, these miracles don't come in the forms that they're expecting. They come in these very subtle messages that you really have to to look for, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You you are very different. (laughs) Well, I tell you, though, there was two and a half years of silence, you know. I had to choose while I was in prison to serve him if he never gave me another thing. I was begging God to have my family forgive me. I remember being on the phone um, calling my mom and my mom telling me that my ex-husband had gotten remarried. Now, mind you, that was my prayer, was that the Lord would bring to my ex-husband a woman so that she could mother my children while I couldn't. Okay, that was my prayer. I was so upset when I got that news, and it wasn't because of my ex-husband getting remarried. That was my prayer. It was because I was also praying that my family would forgive me, but he wasn't answering that one. <laughs> he, was, he was answering these other ones. I'm like, wait, why would you pick that one? I mean, you know, why you, I just want forgiveness. I mean, they don't have to give me anything. Just, just, just a little free, just forgiveness. That's all they have to, you know, and, 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 he, and it was no, and it was silence, and it was, are you going to serve me if I give you nothing? And after reading the scripture and understanding that truly, I didn't deserve anything, that I'm not entitled to anything, that because I have sinned, I deserve death, and that, you know, uh, that's the answer for judgment, and and, and, and am I going to still love him if he never gives me anything? And, I, and, and I, I, like I said, I came to that point where the answer was yes, and when I came to that point, 
um, the Lord said, look, I just wanted to see if your heart was ready. There's a scripture in, in the Bible that says that the Lord, ro Lord roams the earth. He searches the earth looking for who he can strengthen. But that person has got to be searching for him. You know, there's a, there's a there's a verse that says he roams the earth looking for his strength. Well, you know what I do now, right? I but I have my lighter, my lantern, my <laughs> on top of a hill. Hey, <laughs> I need some Jesus. <laughs> hey, pray for me. <laughs> you know, I'm I mean I, I I want him to see me. I love you, Lord. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and it says, "It's not the load that breaks you down; it's the way you carry it." And wow. How true. I mean, to be just because I've become a Christian doesn't mean my life is perfect. Do you know, I have two sons. I have a relationship with my oldest, but not my youngest. God has not chosen to restore that relationship yet. And that is still a burden. And it still hurts my heart. And it's something that I have to live with each and every day. But I know that the Lord's good and that he is full of mercy, and that when the time is right, my, he will allow that relationship to be restored. My dad told me when the day I left prison, he said, Jenny, be careful when you get out um, not to uh, yank doors open. My, my sister wrote that in her letter. My father then said, uh, to elaborate on that, that, that what she said, he says, yeah, he says, because if you pull a door open and you try to force it open and the foundation isn't laid on the other side, then you're just going to fall flat on your face. Ooh, you know, wow. Yes. I like yes. that. Yes. Well, I come from a construction family, so you get the construction analogies and I'm starting to understand. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to get it, you know. And so he's, you know, he's telling me that. He's like, be careful because, you know, the Lord has his timing and his ways are not our ways. And his timing is not necessarily our timing. And you just need to trust him. And so, you know, like I said, life isn't perfect, um, but it's the way I carry that burden now where I where I say, okay, Lord, it's too much for me to bear. Uh, take this for me. And, you know, I, I still shed my tears on Mama's Day, <laughs> you know, on Mother's Day, um, you know, because I, uh, you know, it is a piece of me that's missing. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't uh, lift him up in prayer and, you know, pray for his salvation and pray for the woman that it will be his wife. And, you know, there's, there's something to be said about a praying mama. You know, because I really believe my mama prayed, God. Yes. And God was like, fine. Yes. <laughs> I, will, I will rescue her because you guys down there keep are so loud about this individual, you know. Um, and, and I think, you know, they didn't quit praying. They didn't quit trying. And that's a big, big piece of encouragement to give to the family members. If there's family members of addicts who are listening right now and kind of going, well, what do I do? I'm to the, to the end of, to the end of me. Pray. You know, pray. I mean, God is real. He is absolutely real. I mean, I don't care what program you go to. All of them are going to say that you need to go to God <laughs> because it, it is it is a it is a thing where um, you cannot do it in and of it yourself. You really do need people. You really do need um, a higher power. And um, God is good. He is he is full of mercy. So I am I'm, I'm more than grateful to to be here. I'm, I'm honored to be able to share my story on your podcast. Oh, I mean. Um, I've, I've listened to some of them and it's just amazing, uh, the stories of hope that come out of, um, very, very dark places, you know, and, and it can happen. I, I, I was at that point where I felt like, you know, I can't come back from here, but I now know that that was a lie. The devil told, <laughs> and I believe. Yeah, so <laughs> right. Of course. <laughs> you know, you can't come back from here. You've gone too far. Yeah. Well, friends, I'm here to tell you, look at all I did. 
and look what he's done now. So it's never too late. It's never too late. It's not too, you can't do something so bad that God can't restore it. No, that's that's 100% true. And, and everything that we have gone through started with prayer, as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned. And for many of us, for many years, our foxhole prayers did nothing for us. <laughs> yes. Absolutely nothing. And you talk about that in the beginning, where it's like, mm-hmm. where I would, I would pray and pray and, and nothing would happen. And the, and the reality mm-hmm. is, is, you know, God can see what's inside your heart. Oh, and yeah. he, he knows, he knows whether this is, this is a jackpot foxhole mm-hmm. prayer or, <laughs> yes. or, you know, when you, when you finally are in jail facing, you know, hard time and have, ruined your relationships, destroyed, you know, uh, you know, caused so much wreckage over the last so many years. Mm-hmm. And then there you are. You're at this point where, where you're like, use me, you know, mm-hmm. use my story, use my example in whatever way, way you, you want. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am, I am here and I'm available for whatever it is that you want from me. You know, just mm-hmm. just take me. And that's for me, you know, I'm from Narcotics Anonymous and, and that's the third step prayer. You know, take my will mm-hmm. and my life, guide me in my recovery mm-hmm. and show me how to live. More importantly, mm-hmm. show me how to live. And there's no question in my mind that everything that you've just shared is all divine providence. And unless mm-hmm. you, un- until you were ready, until God could see that in your heart, it wasn't going to happen. And And the beautiful thing is that, you know, unlike others who who have probably experienced wreckage like this where they have ruined so much of their family's life you know Jesus was there for them you know mm-hmm. and 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 their hearts were open and they were probably saying the same prayer as you were mm-hmm. god show me what i need to learn from this mm-hmm. you Amen. know absolutely Amen. no question about it it was almost like all these hearts combined together. And of course it took it took years before mm-hmm. you could see the fruits yes. <laughs> of everything that you had planted. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, you needed to be in jail and, and you needed to pay for, you know, all the wreckage you caused and there needed to be consequences. And I yes, think because of that, your family was able to say, Well, she she did some time. She didn't get away with it. She yeah, she didn't get away with it. Yeah, she didn't get away with it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Doing absolutely. prison time, that means you didn't get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Although, you know, uh, my sister, she now shares her testimony with me during the summertime. She's a teacher, um, so she can't do it during the year. But when we have the opportunity, we, we have gone for the past three years and shared our testimony at, you know, halfway house, churches, that type of thing. And um, it is it is is really neat uh, the way God uh, brings people together uh, in the end, um, regardless of, uh, you know, what people might think and what people might uh um, you know, there's a part in her testimony that she says, you know, I wished, I wished my God would just rid the world of this evil of my sister. Wow. And, you know, I can listen to her say that. I don't know how many times it never gets easier. 
Um, because there was a point that she literally wanted me dead. Yeah. And she felt the world would be a better place without me. And, you know, it's hard to listen to that. But it's so neat because you really get to see how far that the Lord brought her to. And it's a dual testimony. It's really cool to, um, you know, to be, if, if everybody ever has a chance to listen to it or hear us speak together. Because it offers two very different perspectives um, of the same event. And her really having to struggle to forgive and uh, to find love again uh, for me, um, and she does it through God, and then, you know, vice versa, where I'm like, you know, begging <laughs> that that people do forgive me, and that you know I can begin to change my character and develop, you know, change into a person that that could be loved again. Uh, John Piper says something cool. He says, uh, "God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him," and uh, when I read that. Um, it reminds me to find my satisfaction in him. And when I do that, uh, a lot of times your character, those, those little things that we have lost along the way in the midst of using drugs for so many years, you know, you, you become late, perpetually late for everything. And people just know you as disrespectful or whatever. These different types of character flaws that were there or were present during that life. If you're just trying to like be satisfied in God, um, some of those things, they just happen naturally uh, because you, you, you're really striving to be holy and righteous. You're striving to be something that is perfect. Um, and and that, I know that's contrary to a lot of therapy. Uh, perfectionism is wrong and this type of thing. But um, the one good thing about that is that you're always, you'll never reach perfection because, you know, hey, we're in a fallen world. We're sinners. It is what it is. We're flesh. But if we are constantly striving to be perfect, we will never cease changing yeah and 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 face it i don't want to be this way 10 years from now i want to be better (laughs) yeah yeah we all do well not all of us but yes i'm in that same boat with you (laughs) amen amen well i think it's really cool that you're doing the podcast um you know it's a great way to kind of reach out and kind of let other people hear stories of hope uh they make a difference man I, i i remember people coming in and sharing their testimony and being like man I'm going to be like that. <laughs> I want to like have some years under my belt and I want to be able to stand up there and encourage somebody. And, and so it's, it's really neat. I, I commend you for it. And I'll, I'll make sure to keep your, your podcast in prayer and, and kind of lift it up and uh, share it with others. And that's really a cool thing. So thanks so much for having me. Oh, I loved having you, Jenny. I loved having you. But, you know, before we close up, I want our listeners to be able to, to reach out to you because there's a lot of listeners that have taken this path and and the reason why they're in the the private accountability group and the reason why they listen to the podcast is because for some of them NA or AA or you know any other sort of program isn't the way they want it to go um mm-hmm. but 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 the bible and and following following Jesus is is definitely something that that interests them mm-hmm. so so there's there's definitely um there's there's definitely plenty of those that is for sure. So, what how what is the best way for them to find you to reach you? Tell us you know about your book and where they can find it. Okay, well the best way to get in touch with me is if you go to my website, which is JennyReeseClark.com, which is J E N N Y 
R-E-E-S-E-C-L-A-R-K, JennyReeseClark.com. I have uh, quick links to all my social media, and I tell you I'm on Twitter, Google+, Tumblr, uh, she <laughs> is. LinkedIn, you name it. I'm on it. Um, <laughs> and, and you can reach me um, through Messenger. I mean, all kinds of things. There's myriads of ways. There's also uh, links to, to, to email me. Um, uh, I, I have a blog that's attached there, and there, and you know, I try to blog about my spiritual experiences in regular everyday life type things, things that happen to me and, and kind of what kind of perspective I gain from them. Uh, so it's kind of a personal block, which is another way to kind of get to know me. But there is numerous ways to get connected uh, and learn how to actually use the Bible and the church and a faith as your accountability. Um, and I'm glad to reach out to anybody who reaches out to me and says, hey, you know, how do I do this? What's the first steps? I mean, I'm I'm more than happy to, to you know, have conversation about that and, and help out in any way I can. You can find my book also on my website. Um, you can find it on Amazon uh, and a couple other places. So it's called Field of Influence, um, and it's available in ebook, audiobook, um, softback. So um, it, there's a way to get that as well. Um, also, if you're a chaplain or um, a pastor or chaplain's wife, I do offer those for free um, ebooks. Uh, if someone is in therapy and they believe that the program, you know, the, the ebook would be good for, for, for their, their people, uh, they could just message me also. Um, I have Dispenser Project. Uh, since I'm the founder, I get to make the rules, right? <laughs> So Darn right. I, I can give that um, away as well uh, to them if that's something they feel like would be really good for maybe their halfway house girls or guys or whatever. Um, so, so you know, there's there's lots of ways to get connected with me. So beautiful, I love it. All right, and so please tell us, Jenny, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? The best suggestion I have ever received. Um, oh, there's so many. I, I've, I've gotten so many uh, good pieces of advice over the years. Um, uh, I, I love my dad. He, he said, "Just shut up and do it." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Just shut up." Yeah. I was a fancy talker. I was a silver tongue. I could get what I wanted, but they'd heard it all. And it got to that point where it was, you know what? Stop talking and do it. And and you know, don't quit. Uh, don't give in. Keep trucking. Keep going. And and you know, it may not look like there is an end in sight, um, but the Lord is—he's after the heart. And uh, when that heart is right, he when he says if the answer is a yes, the answer is a yes, and he will open the floodgates of blessing and rain them down upon you, and um, you'll be standing there and just dumbfounded at the amount of love and outpouring that can happen in your life just because you were willing to keep going and keep surrendering and, and you know, not turning to yourself to answers, but to him. So, I mean, like I said, I'm a, I'm a quoter. I'm a, I'm a Charles Spurgeon lover. I could probably go on and on <laughs> with the great advice, but you know, the, the podcast, I probably already went over your hour. <laughs> so, just a little, just a tad. I'm sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> well, one more question, one more question. Um, and it's recovery related. Okay? okay. So if you could give a newcomer only mm-hmm. one suggestion, what would it be? Oh, let's see. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite theologian, said, It is better to dig for water, dig for a well, than to die of thirst. And so uh, I I challenge the people to, you know, start digging. Start digging deep. (laughs) 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 Yes, absolutely. That is, you know, take action, move, make Mm -hmm. it happen, do it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Faith without works is dead. Amen. That's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Thanks so man. much, Joe. Thank you, Jenny. This has been amazing. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me again. It's my pleasure. All right, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.